Welcome to the Purpose at Work podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Jacobson. This episode is brought to you by Guided. They help you stop employee burnout and turnover by providing great coaching for all employees so you can get out of the weeds and focus on building great culture. The best talent values learning and growth over everything else. They don't want to be managed. They want to be guided to realize their potential. So if you're ready to evolve talent development, make sure to check out getguided.co. Now let's jump into the episode. All right, Claude, so welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Spencer. I'm excited to be here with you. So I think the place that I'd love to start is if you could share a bit about what being chief heart officer means to you and for the listeners, just understanding some context of what you're up to now, what VaynerMedia is all about. Cool. Yeah, I'd love to. So VaynerMedia is a creative digital agency, global agency that's built for the now. That's what we say. We are highly empathetic creatures here and we are all about creating culture for our end consumer, quite frankly. I've been working in agencies for a really long time with the exception of five years where I had an outdoor adventure company in San Francisco. And my whole life has been spent in balancing my love of creating culture and strong, healthy teams, and as a strategist. So I love human behavior, and I had the incredible career and great honor of working on Fortune 10, Fortune 50 brands across the world and getting those brands into consumers' hands. So it's amazing that that's my background, and here I am as chief heart officer getting to work for and with 800 people. And those people are hearts. They have heartbeats and they are unique individuals that have aches and pains and celebrations and joys and glories and confusion and they're humans. So one of the things Gary and I really focus on here is bringing humanity into the workplace. And the role of a chief heart officer is different than an HR officer or talent officer my one and only remit is to spend time with each and every employee, period. And that must be a lot harder now than a couple years ago, I would imagine. I mean, it's harder and I find a lot of playfulness in it because I have to be creative in how I get in front of people in their busy days and we need to create a relationship together. Why would they come and talk to me, you know, if it's not an emergency or Maybe they hear that I do some coaching or maybe they hear that I might be able to connect them to great people in the agency. So I have a lot of fun figuring out how I'm going to get in front of them. And really, when they're in this room, which you see has no desk, it's really set up to have conversation, mm -hmm. how to activate a conversation, something that we both are curious about so that they're not just telling me about their day, you know, that right. they're <clears throat> telling me about what makes them tick or they're telling me about the fact that they don't know what makes them tick. These are fun things for me to do and to figure out with them in present yeah. day. So speaking of what makes people tick, I'd love to start kind of where it began for you and understand where did you come from? And 
how did that shape who you are now? Okay, great. So I was born in New York, and by the time I was 11, we moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Those first 11 years were spent here in the city. I'm really fortunate. My dad taught me how to throw a baseball and basketball and football at a young age, so athletics was always something that I gravitated towards. When we moved to Santa Fe, which is full of adobe and just completely opposite to New York City, that was quite an adjustment. When did the move happen, by the way? My parents really wanted to raise us in a place that they could see us and spend time with us. And my mom was having a career shift from being a public school teacher to a psychotherapist, so she would be working on her own. And my father was an investment banker and moving to a venture capitalist, so working for himself. And we looked at Portland, Boulder, and Santa Fe, and my parents say that Caleb and I, my brother and I, got to Santa Fe and we looked up at the sky and just said, wow, look at all those stars. You're 7,000 feet up. It is yeah. the most gorgeous place. And we moved there. So it's interesting. People say to me all the time, well, wasn't that weird, you know, to start your life again at 12? I don't really remember it as weird. It just was what we did. You know, I think it was the right moment to move because I didn't have best, 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 best friends at finishing sixth grade. I had two solid great friends who I'm still solid great friends with, but it was a really good time to restart, I yeah. think. And Santa Fe is a magical place. It is absolutely where you play outdoors all the time and you, you kind of get to know yourself in a different mechanism. You know, you're not in an urban jungle. You're out hiking or you're out snowboarding or, you know. Taos. Yeah, just figuring it out. So anyway, it was a big part of my life, even though I don't look back and go, oh yeah, that move was massive. I know it was massive because the trajectory of my life changed then. I probably would have gone to a private school here in New York and so forth and so on, and yeah. who knows what would have happened. Instead, I went to a very small private school in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I had access to the outdoors and I, the wilderness, and I had access to smaller classes and whatnot. That type of learning was the right kind of learning for me even though I struggled as a student for a very long time. So I have a brother, we're 18 months apart, we're best friends. We, for the most part, have been best friends for a very long time, except for a couple of those, you know, shimmy shammy years in high school where we're just kind of like on top of each other. But I love the fact that I can rely on my brother and he can rely on me for yeah. friendship through and through and through. Yeah, so Santa Fe, and then I really didn't have any options. I hadn't made options for myself. I didn't know what options were coming out of high school. And so I got into Rollins College on the wait list. Looking back on it, Spencer, I should have, and I'll use the word should, not gone to college and taken that year to work right. and figure it out. But that's just what you did. And it was 1987, yeah. and really that is what you did. I feel the same way. I felt so much pressure to go to college, but it was probably the last place that I needed to be going when I was 18 in the state of mind that I was in. Yeah, I'm so with you. I was in a place in 18 where I was, you know, doing some kind of self-exploration, but I was in a disruptive state. I was, you know, playing a lot with recreational drugs, which at that time, you know, were still mind expanding and I hadn't gone overboard with them. I was a poor, poor student. I was in a period of self-discovery of like, do I like myself? Do I not like myself? Who am I? And I was not prepared 
to go to school. So I left Rollins after two years. And that, I can say, is when another kind of pivotal time in my life happened, which is when I decided to go on a 93-day Outward Bound course. And I can look back, and that is the biggest moment of my life at that moment, at that time, did the your, first. Did your parents push you towards that, or how did you no, make I that did. decision? Yeah. Okay. So I had two years at Rollins, just not a good, not a good time. Not, I look back and I have a lot of scars from that time. And I said to my parents, quote unquote, I need to find the longest outward bound or Knowles course I can go on to kick my ass. Because I was going nowhere fast, and I mean fast. And away I went. And I talk about this outward bound quite a bit because it was the moment in time where I realized that only I, this body, five foot three, could make it down and up the Grand Canyon with 85 pounds on my back. Only this body was gonna be able to traverse a thousand feet in the Colorado Rockies with 85 pounds on my back yeah. and snow and just, you know, every moment you could break your ankle. Like I learned that this body and mine had to work together for the first time ever to get me from point A to B to C and be in a team. So I had always been in a tennis team, been the captain of this team or that team, and it's my personality to really be that, you know, I root for everyone, I believe yeah. in people, but I didn't have any belief in myself until this trip. And it took me about, I would say, 18 days to even click that I needed to get it together or else I was gonna break my ankle or something. What was going on? Those what? first 18 days? Yeah. God, I just hated myself. I really did. Mm. I did. I constantly had like a whole black as your soul, nine inch nails in my head as I was going up these you know, 13, 14 foot peaks. I didn't like myself. I really felt like the culmination of some of the garbage that I had, I had put in my system and the garbage I had kind of uh, put the situations I had put myself into were just like creating this black hole inside of me. Yeah. And I needed to exercise that, like literally exercise it out and exorcise it yeah. out. And the trip really changed my life. Even though I left the trip and I got back into some bad habits, the foundation of Outward Bound and what Outward Bound mm. stands for and the team building and servant leadership skills that I learned there are exactly what I do today. Mm. Exactly. So Colorado Outward Bound's motto is to serve, to strive, and to never yield. I really believe that I embody those traits today among others and, and they keep me, keep me moving. Yeah. I went on Outward Bound when I was 15. Love it. Needed it. Also went back into some, I mean, I was 15, so I was yet to develop a lot of the challenges that I experienced. But yeah, I do remember how challenging it was and that you just learned that you can do it when you are all in, focused. That was really powerful. I also, I remember one of the first times that I overused Adderall in college. And one of the first times that I was able to just completely get over that was I had developed this narrative that I couldn't focus on challenging things without it. That was just the experience that I created in college. I guess I was 22 and I was in the Himalayas in India riding a motorcycle for 10 days. And I had never ridden a motorcycle before in my life. And so we, my brother and I practiced for, 
he's like, you'll figure it out. Come on, let's go practice. So we went and practiced on his motorcycle for an hour. And then the next day we were at 17,000 feet. <laughs> wow. With like mud and water, ice cold water gushing down the road and glaciers and ice. and. But I remembered that, and so we would ride for like 12 hours plus a day. And you get into these situations where you couldn't stop. You'd be going for hours. The roads were not really roads. They were just like these meandering, massive divots and water. And I remembered focusing for so long. And I remember thinking, I'm having absolutely no trouble focusing here. <laughs> <laughs> Zero trouble focusing. That completely changed my life to see it's not that I can't focus. Right? It's just the circumstances and the environment that I'm putting myself in. And that changed my life forever. Yeah. I love that story yeah. because I'm such a proponent of alternative education and experiential education. And as I'm now a mother, and I know we're going to talk about that, I'm a mother of a six-week-old, so she's got some time before we've got to think about school. I know for a fact I would like to give her an alternative education, maybe a Waldorf school education, where grades and tests and the competition is just not what I grew up with. You know, I want her to learn by climbing trees and painting and hiking and surfing and experiencing curiosity. There's a bunch of places I want to go here. This really plays into the conversation about work and about employees and work environments is how we are educated is in such opposition in a lot of ways to creating excellent and you know, thriving employees. Well, it is. I mean, I'm going to meander for a second, but let's think about your story of motorcycle riding in the Himalayas and my story of being on a 93-day outward bound course. I was the only girl, nine boys. We're 19, 20 years old. The fact of the matter is we created, we architected that for ourselves. Whether or not we were aware of it or not, we were given carte blanche, freedom, whatever, to meander off the road and find out what our path actually was made of. And that we were made strong enough to go down any path that we put in front of ourselves. But we did it rather than the manufactured path that was before you or before me going right. into college. Like, so I think if you think about career architecting, which I think a lot about here at work, and I think about autonomy and giving people, allowing people the free reign to work the way they want to work, do their job the way that makes most sense for them, collaborate with folks the way they want to collaborate, rather than the rigidity of sitting in a cubicle, punch in, punch out, you must do project management this way or else. Right. You get punished and you don't get a raise. That's archaic to me and I know that that happens in the world. However, that doesn't seem very human or humane to me. So when we think about your trip and we think about my trip and we think about what the positive impact Outward Bound had on me, the positive impact I'm telling you that the outdoors yeah. has had on me, there is no rhyme or reason. You can just be outdoors. Like, if you're climbing in the canyonlands of Utah, there is no right way to climb. Right. You just yeah. climb. <laughs> There's a wrong way, and that's to get killed. But there is no right way to go up a mountain if you want to just go explore. Yeah. You follow the path, or you meander off, and you get some poison ivy, and then you come back, you know? 
I think there are signposts in life all along the way that says, hey, danger, proceed with caution. But it's up to us, the human being, I think, to know how far we want to color outside the lines. And, you know, if we want to ride the rail in life or we want to sit back and sit in the bus with everyone else. Something else that I've noticed about nature as well is that humans are the most, I think, the probably the most adaptive species on the planet in the sense that when we're born, we're completely reliant on, we cannot take care of ourselves for years, years and years. You know, horses and they're walking within minutes of being born, right? So there's not as much pre-programming to just do things as humans. And that when we are in nature as well, we're in an environment where we're part of a closed loop system that is organizing itself and reorganizing itself. And you are a part of that system versus Western society and a lot of times the way we work and the way we live is so isolated outside of, there's no closed loop system anymore, right? We're in these nuclear homes and things like that. The level of disconnection that we create and that that's just the environment that we live in. It's not surprising that we don't really know how to collaborate with each other and work that well with each other because we're not in nature. Yeah, we've gone so far from nature. You know, right now, I'm, as I'm talking to you, I'm just thinking about the Marin Headlands and the kind of peace of mind that I used to find hiking the Marin Headlands because there is nothing except the path, cliffs, the mighty Pacific Ocean, and as far as you can see. And there's something that is so liberating about that. And you remind yourself how small you are when you're on a cliff looking at the sea, which goes on forever. And here you are pondering your existence or pondering your navel and trying to figure yeah. shit out. Can we talk about being a mom? Yeah. So you just, yeah. You, you, <laughs> this just happened. I mean, I just want to hear about the experience. This is the first time I'm seeing you since then. And also what you're learning, like mm. what has come up. I also want to just acknowledge you too. You're such a heart of a person, so empathic and so much compassion. And I can only imagine what that then feels like as a mom. Yeah for there to be this like externalized heart now also. Yeah, so thank you so much. I'm absolutely blown away with this unbounded love I have for this creature that I just met six weeks ago. And while she was cooking for nine months, I fell in love with her the minute I knew we were having a baby, then the minute I knew we were having a girl, like I absolutely fell in love with her and started talking to her, you know, psychically or, you know, emotionally yeah. and whatnot. So I had that love, but I was just me. I had, I was the me that I had always been. The minute she came out, all of a sudden, this entirely new dimension opened up and like that I knew this was my person. This is who I was going to take care of for the rest of my life. This is someone that might take care of me at some point, but that we were family. And it really, it really joined, it created a unit between me and my partner and my daughter. I don't think we had the same unit before she was born. I don't know how to describe it other than I know we're together forever. I just know we are together forever. And this whole other compartment 
this whole other space called love has opened up inside of me that I didn't know that that chamber was there. Mm. I really didn't. And thank you for acknowledging I am a heart person. I'm a lover. I believe in people. I'm like, you know, I'm there through and through. Wow. And I thought that was big. Yeah. And now I'm sitting here and I'm looking at all I can compare it to is like as big as heaven. Like I, I don't even know what heaven is, but there is no boundary with this love. And what she's teaching me in such a massive way is to be present because her needs, and she has needs every second or every other second, her needs are what comes first and she can't take care of herself. So if she's crying, you pick her up. If she's crying and you burp her, if she's crying, you feed her. If she's, if that doesn't work, you try singing to her. If that doesn't work, you change her diaper. Like everything is around her needs and you must be absolutely selfless, absolutely. Getting up, I don't know when I got up, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, because she was just you know, having a fit. Like, okay, well, that's it. My sleep was cut short. <laughs> so I'm learning a lot about myself at 49 years old, which I, I really didn't know I would be learning this. This wasn't a part of the plan. Right. Not that I live my life by a plan. And now I just think, God, these next 50 years are going to be so magical. Watching her evolve, watching her be curious, watching her relate to me, to human beings. So I'm really, I can't even believe that a baby cooks for nine months, is safe, is warm, is loved, is yeah. fed. And then they come into this world and all of a sudden we're like squeezing them and kissing them and putting clothes on them. And they're dealing with noise and light and everything. And so heroic. I really think that these are like these tiny giants that are heroes. Mm. And that's literally what I can say about it. Have you noticed the change in how you interact? I will tell you what I've noticed. And it's something I feel like I had and I had a good handle on, but I think now is completely different dimension. I often say that 99% of things don't matter. So focus on that 1%. Now I am very clear on what that 1% is. I really am. And the 1% comes down to love. It comes down to respect. Mm. It comes down to kindness. It comes down to being present, being humble. Those are the things that yeah. matter to me. Nothing else matters. And so as I I'm here with 800 and, and working through the day-to-day -day challenges that a team might have or a person has or an organism has. I really am so much more focused on how can we move all that noise away and take care of the problem at hand so that I can also get home to Shalom, so. It's a good incentive to be yeah. laser. <laughs> really focused. To yeah. be really focused. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's so exciting. Thanks for asking. Yeah. A lot of babies in the Universe. atmosphere yeah. these days, and I'm looking forward to meeting her. Thank you. In the time that we have, we'd love to hear about some of what you're working on in terms of talent strategy with Vayner. The culture here is really interesting. The company has grown really fast, and I know that you're always thinking about this and how can you push things forward? How can you make this more of a place where people can thrive, be more human? So I'm curious about like, what are you excited about? Yeah, I'm glad you asked the question. So I think I've told you in the past that a few years ago, we changed the way we 
recruit and hire, and, and we moved away from culture fit to culture addition. So we now are hiring for skill set fit and culture addition, which has allowed us to find many more diverse candidates, race, sexuality, ethnicity, mm. seen and unseen handicap, and diversity of thought, diversity of value, looking for values and that are in our same zip code or zip codes, but that express a little bit differently because that adds to like the minestrone soup that we are, Yeah, you know? So that's the thing, that's something that we've put in place three years ago and we are constantly just reinventing that as every day goes on and as we are becoming more specialized in what it is we do. One of the things that is important as we look for talent is hiring for the roles we have today, but much more importantly, where we're going tomorrow. Because tomorrow, as anyone that works at VaynerMedia or anyone that is working in digital today, tomorrow is already here. You know, we're already talking about 2020. So our eyes have to be open to what's coming, which mm -hmm. I think is super important. So it's just like when you're a candidate and you're applying to a job, most of the time you apply to a job that's a little more aspirational for yourself. Right. So we're looking for aspirational candidates as well. The other things that are really important are integrity and self-awareness. And so how do we search for that and how do we hire for that? And I think that's interesting because integrity to you might be a little bit different than integrity to me. So how do we find a common denominator? How do we define those? And how do we assess also once we have those people in, in the company, how do we assess those traits? Yeah. So I think those are things that certainly are keeping me on my toes right now. And you know, looking at behaviors, again, we're hiring for skill set. Okay, that's not as hard as it sounds because we know the skills we need and we know the skills we're going to need for the most part. So how do we look for culture additions that are behaviorally in our zip codes, which I think is really interesting. And one of the things that we've always done here, and I, you know, this is really tipping my hat to Gary, is really focusing on EQ over IQ. And again, the manifestation of EQ. However, we all know that EQ is certainly not selfishness. So we know how to ask questions that will help us ascertain where that person's EQ is. So those are things that are really important. And then, of course, you know, it, this sounds so simple, but energy. So energy is what keeps this culture alive. We're plugging this culture into sockets all day long, and they're energizing us or they're stripping us of energy. Right. Because the culture is everyone's responsibility here. So looking at individuals and looking at teams and team dynamics and using some systems thinking to see what the energy, what the pulse is on each and every team. Now, my job is to take the pulse of the macro and certainly the micro. It's the you know, leaders and the managers and the people in those teams to really be taking the pulse of those teams on a daily basis, if that makes sense. Yeah. So those are things that I think a lot about, which keeps me on my toes. You know, Then once you get all of those things humming, how do we then allow for collaboration? How do we allow for the balance between multitasking and solo tasking. We now know that an open office is not the best for everyone. Distraction is a real thing. And I just heard something that once you are distracted and you start multitasking, it takes 25.6 minutes to get back into your zone. You know, think about how many 25.6 yeah. minutes I waste every single day. 
you know, when I get off target. So these are kind of fun things. How are you guys approaching that? This is something I'm yeah. nerding out on right now. Yeah. I just got Jason Fried's new book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. He's the founder of Basecamp. Oh, nice, and, yeah. And uh, he wrote Rework. Anyways, that's part of yeah. what they're... I have Rework right there, yeah, on the bookshelf. We're just doing a test on my team right now, so the people and experience team, the HR team. And we are doing something, and we worked with a company last week. I'm not quite sure of the full name, so excuse me, but it's all about being in the cave or outside of the cave. And when you're in the cave, you are not to be disturbed. It is a working time. You literally put a coaster on your desk that says, I'm in the cave. And that's a known fact now on our team that you don't disturb that person. When it says you're out of the cave, you can talk, you can jam, you can answer that person's questions. But when you're in the cave, you are focusing on the tasks that you determine are the tasks that need your full attention. So, for example, last week for me, I had five emails sitting in my drafts that I just needed to crunch out. That's what I did when I was in the cave. I needed absolute quiet time, non-disturbed. I'm not looking at social. I'm turned off Slack. We lock our phones up for that hour. So that's one of the things that we're testing and it's working so well with 12 people on on my team and you know we're back office function so we get asked questions all the time. Right. So what I'd love to do is see if other team leaders would like to try this on for size because I do really think that it just helps focus. Distractions are a real thing and you know we're all looking at our phones you know 24/7. So that is something that we're bringing in right now. I love that. Yeah, cave day. That's what cave we're calling day. it. Cave day. Yeah, I'll send you more information on it if you want to put it in the links. I do a, uh, with some folks on my team, we do a standing co-working set, virtual co-working session every day where we take the first five minutes to check in and we have 50 minutes of we hold each other accountable to turning our phones off, notifications off, closing email unless you have important emails, that's what you're doing in that time. And then we work for those 50 and then we check out. And yeah. we just say, hey, did you, you know, did you do the thing? That's cool, and that's the same thing. It's wildly productive, even to have you know, 45, 50 minutes totally uninterrupted and to get into that habit. Yeah, it's really, really awesome. And I have taken a lot of pride in my life being like a great multitasker. I'm really not, <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm, I'm not. I get distracted like the next person. Now, having a daughter, an infant, is what keeps me on task. But otherwise, it's really, it's hard. You know, we're curious folks. As we start to wrap up here, I'm curious if there's anything else on your mind that has come up around this, around purpose, around people, leadership. Because I will also say this, there's probably a many more hours we could go in a lot of different directions but for now yeah thank you we could go for many 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 yeah. hours I think purpose is extremely important for people to find whether or not that is a purpose a guiding principle statement or as a, a purpose for their day I think that we are look we're meaning making machines what does that mean us human beings, we're trying to always decipher the meaning of something so that we can control it or that we can prevent an attack. I am making 
that conversation that you had with me means something that quite frankly, probably just didn't. Right. <laughs> She moved her hair and she it made it mean that she was impatient yeah, about ending the interview. Or, yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> but we were meaning-making machines and we get the story about either ourselves, our limiting beliefs, our imposter syndrome, the story about someone else in our head creates noise and we just get this kind of racket. We're just running this racket constantly. We, human beings. And how important it is, I think, to have enough self-awareness or to teach self-awareness, to teach people that whatever it is you think is going on probably isn't going on. Like the meaning that we've given X, Y, and Z is probably just not the meaning. It probably just is a simple client had a bad day, you had a bad conversation with the client, but it's not that she's gonna fire you or that you stink at your job. She's probably had a bad day. Maybe she just got yelled at, who knows, you know? Maybe right. she's not working in a, in a cool culture like this. So anyway, I meandered, but I think self-awareness is extremely important. And how do we teach self-awareness in a way that comes with a lot of compassion and empathy? And how do we guide people towards finding their purpose? Because I do believe when we have a purpose in life and we have a purpose that is greater than ourselves, we are free. We are absolutely free. Couldn't agree more. And want to continue the conversation around purpose and creating that for employees. And you know what I, I want to go into in the future is what is the role of a company or the responsibility of a company in supporting people in that self-awareness journey, right? And in that finding purpose journey. Well, to be continued, but what Absolutely. I will say is it is the role of the company to provide both the shell and the way in, I believe. Awesome, Claude. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and excited for everything we're going to get to do yeah. in the future. Me too. Thanks, Spencer. It's great seeing you. <laughs>